Well, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. You can find it on page 909 in the Bibles provided there in the pews. That's going to take a little adjustment for me. The pew Bibles, they're 909 in the pew Bibles. You know, in many ways for us, this is a new beginning. I mean, we've got this new building. We've got a new website, thanks to Ben Bilesma. We're starting a new sermon series in the book of Acts. The children's ministry is under new command, thanks to Katrina and Rachel for that. We're excited about that. And yet, we're the same church that started six years ago, preaching, teaching, singing, uniting ourselves around the same gospel truth that we have always proclaimed, the gospel truth that is founded upon the one and only Lord Jesus Christ. This building is new to us. We're a new congregation to this building, but for 120 years, this building has served as a gathering place for worship, for prayer, for gospel proclamation, for years after years after years. It, it served first the First Baptist Church of Urbana, who founded, who, that, that church was founded in 1838. They were the church that built this building in 1895, and for 110 years they met here to worship, to pray, to proclaim. I can't help but think about the, the number of times the gospel was shared here. I can't think about the number of times someone was baptized in this baptistry that I'm standing on. Number of songs sung. Number of weddings that took place here. It's a deep and rich history. And the same could be said for the Korean New Life Church who worshipped here the last 10 years. We are part of a deep tradition. Sure, there are new faces. Sure, there are new generations. Sure, there are different styles, even different languages. But we gather for the same purpose. And something similar can be said for the book of Acts. Acts chronicles a new beginning. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon God's people. The mission activity of Christ's apostles. The inclusion of non-Jews into the chosen family of God. And the establishment of the church throughout the Mediterranean to the very ends of the earth. That's exciting. New things are exciting. We like new things. We dig new things. New things are hip. Like young churches meeting in new buildings. Or at least as hip as they can be with those leaders. But nevertheless, we can get so caught up in the excitement of novelty that we forget that Acts is a part of the eternal plan of God from before the foundation of the world to redeem a people for himself, for his own possession. That the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is something that God had been promising for centuries. We forget that the apostles were not preaching a new word, but they were preaching the perfect, truthful, trustworthy, unchanging self-revelation of God from the Old Testament. It's just now they were able to understand how Jesus fulfilled it. We forget that the term Christian is not self-defined, however we like it. But through faith in Jesus Christ, we are brought into union with Him. And by being brought into union with Him, we are brought into union with all His people from everywhere on the globe and every point in history, gathered together with, as, as God's family with the likes of Abraham and Moses and David and called to live together as a family. We forget that the church is established on Christ, not on our personal preferences. And that mission and ministry is not something that we do in our own power. It is something that Christ does in and through us. The mission of Christ didn't die with Him on the cross. The mission of Christ wasn't thwarted with the martyrdom of the apostles. The, the mission of Christ didn't fizzle out over the centuries through the age of the church and now Christianity is past its day in the sun and all we have left are just musty old photo albums and newspaper clippings to flip through of the glory days gone by. That's not how we're going to 
read the book of Acts. That's not what the book of Acts is about. That's not how we're going to treat it. Instead, what we're going to see through our study, and especially this morning in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, the prologue, the beginning of this book, we're going to see that the mission of Christ continues. Simple, straightforward, profound. God is not dead. The gospel has not been thwarted. The church is not archaic or obsolete. It has nothing to do with programs or performances or by bowing down to cultural demands. It's not centered on charismatic figures or fleeting fads. It's not about the sights and sounds of it all. It's not determined by our competencies or by our failures. Why? Because the mission of Christ continues. It continues through the historical ministry of Jesus, continues through the commissioning of his chosen, and it continues through the power of the promised Holy Spirit. And so I want us to keep that in mind as we turn our attention to the text this morning, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. It says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, did you notice what Luke said about the mission of Jesus there in verse 1? Here's Luke giving a faithful historical account, not only of what Christ has done, what he did, and what he taught. And now he's kind of moving on to talk about what the apostles did or taught. Don't, don't get deceived by the title that might appear at the top of your page, the Acts of the Apostles. This is not about them. No, he says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Meaning, he's not done. In this second book, the book of Acts, Luke is going to tell us what Jesus continued to do and teach. The mission of Christ continues. And this passage identifies three ways that the mission of Christ continues. We're going to spend most of our time in the first, but we're going to address this in the other two because they're here in this text. And so, first of all, the mission of Christ continues from the historical ministry of Jesus. I have to add that word historical because there are people out there that actually want to suggest to you that Jesus was a myth, that he wasn't even real, that we can't really know anything about him because they're so skeptical and distrusting that they cannot possibly believe that someone could give you a factual, faithful account of what actually happened in history. That They're saying, no, 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 history is told by the winners, Right? And it's skewed. People have their own agendas in mind when they tell you history. It doesn't tell you the whole picture, and so you can't really trust what it says to you. They're just really grand embellishments. They're yarns that are spun to mislead you to serve someone else's sinister agenda. So if you hold to some sort of history and say that's authoritative, you're being duped. But how sinister is Luke's agenda here? This is his second book about the ongoing ministry of Jesus. So we need to take a look at the first book in order to get a better idea because he introduces it more thoroughly. And so if you would, keep your finger right here and flip to the left to book number one, the Gospel of Luke. You can find it on page 855. See, Luke and Acts, they're meant to go together. Acts 1.1 tells us as much. In my first book, O Theophilus, and so what's the first book? It's the Gospel of Luke. Let's turn there. 
So maybe, maybe I should have just started preaching in the Gospel of Luke, you know, just kind of done the Gospel of Luke and then gone into the book of Acts, you know, and then by that time, by the time we're finished, we would have covered one quarter of the New Testament. That'd be a nice short sermon series, right? You're, you hear laughter, if, if you're new here, you hear laughter because just so you know, I preach through books of the Bible, Okay. I work my way systematically through the text of Scripture, and the reason why I do that is because the authority uh, of the Word of God is more than sufficient for all of life's needs, right? I'm not up here preaching my opinions to you. I'm not here preaching my favorite topics to you. I want you to know and understand and love the Word of God and know how it applies to you in all areas of your life. I don't want to skip around topics that are a little bit uncomfortable to me, so the best way that I do that is I preach through books of the Bible. So that's what we're doing. So with that caveat aside, Luke 1, 1 through 4, says this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Pretty devious right there, isn't it? No, he says, look, many have undertaken this task of compiling a narrative. I'm not the only one that's done that. There are many others that are out there, and you can actually go and you can check my work with them. And we have three others in our Bibles, the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and John, right? And he says, look, you can test them again. You'll, you'll see they're not in disagreement. And so keep this in mind also as you're studying Scripture, guys. We have four accounts of the Gospel, no, so, so, not so that you could nitpick about the differences, the supposed differences that are in there, but to highlight the fact that, no, they are one consistent message. Luke says, look, we're, we're looking at these together, not so that we can pick them apart and say, oh, look at that, wording's a little bit different, therefore we've got to throw it all out. He's saying, no, look at it, because you can say it's one story. It's truth. There are eyewitnesses' accounts that we can compare. That's what he's getting at here. But he goes on. Not only that, but there are those who were there from the very beginning, and they were eyewitnesses of all that we have seen, and are even themselves ministers of God's Word, and we have heard their accounts. They've delivered them to us, so you can recall what guys like Peter have said to you. You, you can recall their storyline. You'll see that my story is consistent with that. And if you have any questions about it, guess what? They're still alive, so you can go back and talk to them. And then he says, it seemed good to me, not evil, but good to me to do so. You know, I myself, I followed these things closely for some time past now, and I've sought to give an orderly, accurate account of all that has happened. And even more so, I'm doing this for you, most excellent Theophilus. I'm doing this for you because I care about you. Theophilus is someone he's loved. And why does he, it seem good to him to give this orderly account to his dear friend Theophilus? Well, so that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. He wants him to have certainty. He wants him to have assurance of faith. But even more than that, when you think about the big picture, when you think about who we are as Christians, we have received the truth of God. We know the truth now because God has given that to us and he's called us to be his ambassadors to tell the truth about him. And so we should be very, very motivated to tell the truth because we know that we're going to have to give an account for the testimony that we give. And so as Luke, he has to know in the back of his mind, it's like, look, I know that when I'm putting this in writing, I'm accountable to God for what I'm telling you. So I'm going to have due diligence in making sure that what I tell you is faithful to what the Lord has given to me. The revelation that I've received, I want to pass on to you. The Christians ought to be the most trustworthy and truthful people out there. They should never question the truth of our claims. Why? Because we've received the truth about God, and we know that we're accountable to it. We've been called to bear witness to it. And so we should want to be truthful. 
And so we have no reason to question the sincerity of Luke's motives or of his account. It can be verified by others. He's taken great care to give a faithful account. He's not some idiotic country bumpkin out there. He's a well-educated doctor. He knows how to study. He knows how to remember things. He's been a travel companion with the Apostle Paul. And he's doing this for good reasons so that we might have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught. And so you might not like the implications that history has on your life. Because it does, but it doesn't make it untrue. See, that's the reality of it. History has implications. They bear themselves out upon us, and we don't like that, and that's why we want to reject it. But let's face it, you can't do that. If you were born in the United States, like it or not, U.S. history will come to bear on your life. Here's just one example. You will pay taxes. Right? You cannot reject the history of the United States, and that will not absolve you from having to pay taxes. You just can't do that. The same is true with biblical history. And so in reading the history that Luke gives us, it will lead us to a point of decision. You see, we will have to come face to face with all that Jesus said and all that Jesus did, and we're going to have to reconcile the data We can't ignore it. We can't dismiss it. And of course, Luke wants you to come to the right conclusion. He wants you to have certainty regarding the faith. But just because that is what he hopes that his history will do for you and in you and through you, it does not mean that we can reject it because he has an ulterior motive. Right? His agenda doesn't make his account false. We don't get off that easy. And so the Gospel of Luke is devoted almost exclusively to giving an orderly account of the earthly ministry of Jesus, who he was, what he taught, what he did. But the final chapter of the Gospel of Luke is devoted to the resurrection ministry of Jesus and his ascension into heaven. You see, the historical ministry of Jesus is more than his earthly pre-crucifixion ministry. That was just the beginning. The historical ministry of Jesus also includes his resurrection ministry and his ascension ministry. And so before we turn our attention back to the the book of Acts, we need to take a a look at the, the end chapter of Luke. Luke 24, verses 36 through 53. So you can find it on page 885. It's important for us to see the overlapping connections between these two books. If we want to see Luke's historical account of Jesus, we have to consider the resurrection and ascension of Jesus himself. And so in Luke 24, verse 36, what's happening here is the disciples are gathered together and they're talking to each other about what has just happened. The resurrected Lord Jesus Christ has just appeared to two guys as they were on their way to the town of Emmaus. And so it picks up by saying, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they'd saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why did doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for the spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. Actually, I love that phrase. But while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. And then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, in other words, the entire Old Testament, must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Not some of the Scriptures, not the Scriptures that we like or prefer, but all the Scriptures, the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, And that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And you 
are witnesses to these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Now notice, in verses 36 through 43, Jesus appears to his disciples. And we had that same thing happen back in Acts 1, verse 3. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And so, for 40 days, the resurrected Lord Jesus ministered to them. He gave them many proofs that he had indeed risen from the grave. In Luke 24, verses 44 through 47, the resurrected Christ continues to teach them. He reveals himself to them. He opens up their minds to understand how he fulfilled all of the Old Testament scripture. And in Acts 1-3, we have a very condensed description of that same thing as he continued speaking to them about the kingdom of God. In Luke 24, verses 46 through 48, Jesus commissions his disciples. He gives them the gospel that it is written that the Christ must suffer and on the third day rise from the grave and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations and you are witnesses of these things. And in Acts 1, Jesus commanded his chosen in verse 2 and in verses 6 through 8, which we'll look at next week, he calls them to be witnesses to the very ends of the earth. In Luke 24, verse 49, and in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, we see the resurrected Christ calling them to wait in Jerusalem until he sends the promised Holy Spirit to them. And in Luke 24, verses 50 through 53, and then in Acts 1, 2, and again in verses 6 through 11, Luke gives a record of their eyewitness account to the ascension of Jesus into heaven. And so there we see the historical record of the resurrection ministry of Jesus. How he appeared to them, how he taught them, how he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, how he commissioned them to be his witnesses, how he promised them that he would send to them his Holy Spirit, and, that, and how he ascended into heaven before them. You see, beloved of God, book one was all about Jesus, what he began to do and teach. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles whom he had chosen. And that's where Luke's gospel left off. But it doesn't end with his death and burial. Jesus' ministry is not an earthly ministry like that of any mortal man. After dying on a cross to conquer sin and death, Jesus rose and ascended. And even that was the beginning. You see, Jesus continued his mission even after his ascension. At Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, after Peter had preached to the masses of how we are all responsible for the death of Christ, it is our sin that held him there, and yet he is risen and the ascended Lord. The people were cut to the heart and they asked, what must they do to be saved? And Peter says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, and then in the name of the Lord Christ. And what happens? They respond. And 3,000 were added that day to the church. And what happens from there is life-altering. They daily commit themselves to each other, to teaching, to prayer, to fellowship, to caring for each other, to worship. And chapter 2, verse 47 ends with this statement. And the Lord. We often miss this, but it says, And the Lord, that is Christ, added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Wait, I thought they did that. Because they asked what they must do to be saved and they, they repented and were baptized. I, I thought it was because the apostles were, were preaching the gospel and that's how they came to faith. And that's how that number was added day by day. No, that's not what it says. It says the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. When Stephen was stoned in Acts chapter 7, who does he see? But the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of the Father, ready to welcome Him in. In Acts chapter 8 and 9, Saul, 
is ravaging the church, breathing murders and threats. And he's carrying off male and female Christians and dragging them off into prison. And Jesus appeared to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting those Christians? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? It's not what he says. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? How can he say that? It's because he was working in and through his people. Acts chapter 9, it was the Lord who healed Aeneas. In chapter 10, it was the Lord who spoke to Peter in a vision to include non-Jews into the people of God. In Acts chapter 18, it was the Lord Jesus who comforted Paul in Corinth, saying to him, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Is that not what Jesus had promised his disciples before he ascended in Matthew 28, the Great Commission? When he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, get this, I am with you always to the end of the age. Friends, that is part of the historical ministry of Jesus too. And so every time The cause of Christ has gone forward throughout history in the face of extreme persecution. Every time doctrinal clarity has been brought like justification by faith during the time of the Reformation. Every time the gospel is advanced into new territories to an unreached people groups. Every time the word of God is translated into the language of the people so that they can now read and hear and believe and understand. Every time the word... Uh, every time we live in the Spirit, every time we obey the Word of God, every time we observe all that Christ has commanded us, every time the people of God gather together to worship Him and the Word of God is faithfully proclaimed in His name, guess who also is there on mission? Christ is. His mission continues. Jesus died and was buried. And why would anyone want to follow him? Because he's a great moral example? Well, so's my grandma. But I don't go to church to worship her. So is Mother Teresa. So is Gandhi. What makes them, what makes him so much more special that we devote this day to him? Was it because of how great his sacrifice was? Well, plenty of other people have been martyred for what they believe. Think about those those Buddhist monks who set themselves on fire. Does anyone remember their names? Does anyone remember anything that they taught or what they were about? And so how is it that 2,000 years later, we're still singing about Jesus? How is it then that Christianity has spread across the globe in the face of extreme persecution? It's been estimated that some 70 million people have died for their faith in Christ. The Voice of Martyrs actually reports that an average of 100,000 men and women and children every year are killed for their faith. That more people have died in the last few decades for the name of Christ than almost the rest of the 2,000 years that Christianity has been moving across the globe. How is that the case? How do you explain that? Why would anyone die for a lie? And notice that they didn't kill anybody in the process. Why would they give their life for that? Why would they give their life for some errant moral example that died 2,000 years ago? Is it because they're crazy stupid? Or is it because 
Jesus is alive and his mission continues. See, Dr. Luke argues for the latter. And so do I. You may look at Christianity in America and say, look, it's waning. But friends, it is thriving in other places in the world. Just go to India. Jesus is alive. Jesus is at work. Jesus' ministry throughout the course of history continues. And you can be certain that. And if history is told by the winners, then guess what? You've just proven that Jesus won. Because history tells of him. So we can be certain the mission of Christ continues, that the historical ministry of Jesus goes on. And so that's the first way we see the mission of Christ continues. The beginning and progressing of the historical ministry of Jesus. The next two points are going to be much shorter because we're going to have lots more opportunities to look at those. But we need to address them now because they're addressed in this text. And we need to think about them as we leave here today. So second, the mission of Christ continues through the commissioning of His chosen. In His wisdom in His kindness, in His goodness, and even in His power, Christ uses means to accomplish His mission. Jesus calls sinners. He redeems sinners and appoints redeemed sinners to be His ambassadors with that saving message to other sinners. And this was all a part of God's plan from the very foundation of the world. Those who are commissioned to be his ambassadors were first chosen. And we see it right there in in verse 2 in the phrase, after Christ had given his commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. They didn't choose him, he chose them. And in John chapter 15 verse 16, he tells them as much. He says quite explicitly, get this, You did not choose me, but I chose you. Pretty straightforward, right? But he goes on to say, And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. This is lasting fruit. This is effectual fruit. This is not our words only, but this is fruit that comes and bore by power. Not our power, by his. When we come to Christ, we do not simply come because we chose him, but because he first chose us. And though his choice of his apostles is unique within salvation history, no one's discounting that here. Everyone who comes to Christ was first chosen by Christ, and everyone who is chosen by Christ is commissioned by Christ to tell others about Christ. We see this unfold throughout the book of Acts. Now, the first eight chapters, it is the the apostles who are primarily bearing witness to Christ. But then, in chapter 8, something happens. Persecution breaks out in Jerusalem. And so, the Christians, they begin to scatter. But what we read about is that the apostles stay in Jerusalem. So, you got all of these other believers, these non-chosen apostles who are going out all over the place. And the apostles are staying there in Jerusalem. And what is happening? The Word of God is going forward with them. And so in the very next section, you've got Philip, who's now bearing witness to Christ in Acts chapter 8 throughout Samaria. It's moving on. It's moving outward. Suddenly, you've got in Acts chapter 9, the primary persecutor of the church, Saul, being saved. And what does he do? He starts preaching Christ. In Acts, uh, Peter takes the gospel in Acts chapter 10 to the Gentiles in Caesarea. When he goes back, they keep going. In Acts chapter 11, those Christians who were scattered by the persecution that started in chapter 8 were now preaching Christ and churches are beginning to pop up in places like Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. So that by the time you come to Acts chapter 13, 
You've got this church in Antioch that's been established by non-apostolic Christians, and they are setting aside, directed by the Holy Spirit, to set aside Paul and Barnabas for the work of missions. And they send them out throughout Galatia to preach the name of Christ. None of the twelve apostles are there. And they're preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And as they go, they start establishing churches and they appoint elders in every single church, in every single town where they went. And those elders continue on with the very things that they were doing. And none of this is happening directly at the hands of the chosen 12 apostles. Otherwise, the church would have died when they died. Now, to be a disciple of Christ is to be a disciple maker. To be in Christ is to proclaim Christ. All who are chosen are commissioned. If you need more proof, here's one from the chosen apostle Peter. Take this to the bank. Okay, then 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, Peter is addressing Gentile Christians in the region of modern-day Turkey, long, long way away from Jerusalem. Okay? Non-Jews, non-twelve apostles, and here's what he says. But you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? So that you, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, all who are chosen have been commissioned. But not only that, all who are taught have been commissioned. In verse 3, we see the resurrected Christ speaking to his disciples about the kingdom of God. He's teaching them so that they might go and teach others also. And that's exactly what they do. So that by the time you get to Acts chapter 8, verse 12, it's not the apostles who are teaching about the kingdom of God first, but it's Philip in Samaria. And he's teaching about the kingdom of God. In Acts chapter 14, verse 22, Paul and Barnabas, they went from Derbe to Lystra to Iconium to Antioch to strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. In Acts 19, verse 8, 28, verse 23, Paul reasoned with the Jews from Scripture in the synagogues in both Ephesus and in Rome about the kingdom of God and how Jesus is the Christ. And the book of Acts even ends with Paul under house arrest, and now this time he's in Rome, and what is he doing? He's proclaiming the kingdom of God, and he is teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And so as followers of Christ, we are to take the things that we have been taught, and we are to entrust them to others. All these things that we have seen and heard in the presence of many witnesses, we entrust them to the faithful who will be able to go and teach others also from generation to generation, to generation, to generation, from this place, to that place, to that place, to that place, to the ends of the earth. And though this is especially true for the leaders of the church, it is true for every one of us, even our children. You know, we sing that song, hide it under a bushel? No. What do we do with the things that we've been taught? We've got to let them shine. Right? Non-inspired song, but you get the point, right? We don't keep it to ourselves. We teach what we've been taught. So Christ chose them. Christ taught them. And Christ is the one who sent them out. To do what? Did he send them out to build big, fancy church buildings? Did he send them out so that they could have the latest, greatest fads and technologies? To offer lots of great programs to inspire anybody to meet everybody's felt needs. To put on a great performance. Maybe that's what we're to be about. Just one great show, week after week after week, keep people coming. No. He sent them out to proclaim His name. And as He did... What we see happening over and over and over and over again throughout the book of Acts is that the word of God increased. So you got Acts chapter 6, verse 7. And the word of God 
continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Or in Acts chapter 12, verse 24, after having killed the apostle James with a sword to please the Jews, King Herod, he stands up and he boasts of his greatness, and what happens? God strikes him dead. He is eaten by worms, but it says in contrast, the word of God continued to increase and the num- um, and be multiplied. And then in Acts 19, verse 20, Ephesus, many began confessing their sin and they're believing in Jesus. Those who practice magic arts, they're now bringing their books together and burning them in the sight of all. So the word of the Lord continue to increase and prevail mightily. The word of God increased. The word of God multiplied. The word of God prevailed mightily. Church, that is what we are to be about. That is why we have been commissioned. That is why we are here. That is why I even preach long sermons. We are taught about the kingdom of God so that we might proclaim the kingdom of God so that others might become citizens of the kingdom of God and then go and tell others about the kingdom of God. The mission of Christ continues. And we have been commissioned as his chosen to bear witness to his name so that the word of God increases, so that the word of God is multiplied, and so that the word of God prevails mightily. But we don't do this in our own power. The mission of Christ continues from the historical ministry of Jesus, through the commissioning of his chosen, third, by the power of the promised Holy Spirit. That title that's given to this book is a bit misleading. It was added sometime in the second century. probably says at the top of your Bible, the Acts of the Apostles. We can look at this and think, well, this is all about what they did, but it's not. Some biblical scholars have come in and said, you know what, we ought to change the name. We ought to call it Acts of the Holy Spirit. But even that in itself is is misleading because it might lead people to think that the Spirit is somehow working independently from the Word and the witness of God's people. And so a better title might be this one. Get out your writing utensils. Empowered by the Holy Spirit to bear witness to the mission of our sovereign God in Christ according to the apostles' teaching. It's a bit wordy, so I had to shorten it. To empowered, to bear witness to the mission of Christ. But make no mistake about it. The Lord equips us to do what he has called us to do. The same Holy Spirit from verse 2 that empowered Christ for his earthly ministry, that strengthened him, that authorized his message, that verified his command to the apostles is the same Holy Spirit that he sends to empower and to strengthen and to authorize and to verify his chosen to complete their mission. So that when we read in verses 4 and 5, and while Staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Friends, something new was about to happen, though it had been building up to this point for centuries. God the Father had promised for many, many years through the mouths of prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Joel, that he would pour out his Holy Spirit upon his people. Jesus had told them in the Gospel of John how he would send a helper to them to not only comfort them, but to help them to remember all those things that he had said and all those things that he had done. John the Baptist, the promised forerunner, told the people that he baptized them with water, but there is one who will come after him who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And Jesus assures us that is what will happen and not many days from now. By the time we get to Acts chapter 2, there it is. The same Holy Spirit who empowered Jesus for his earthly ministry is poured out upon all of his chosen to empower them to bear witness to the mission of Christ. That is the mission of the Holy Spirit throughout Acts. If you look carefully, don't get caught up in all the fanciful. 
Yes, there's some amazing things that happen there. We'll have plenty of time to talk about those. But what we see as the mission, the purpose of the Holy Spirit throughout the book of Acts, it is to advance the cause of Christ. People are filled with the Holy Spirit, and what do they do? They boldly proclaim, they boldly bear witness to Jesus. So much so that one commentator points out that the Spirit operating in the church The central goal of that is that God's community be committed to mission. If you think about the Holy Spirit apart from mission, you're not looking at it correctly. The whole point of being filled with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts is mission. So as you continue to read, we see that the Holy Spirit not only empowers and fills, but he verifies the truthfulness of the disciples' claim. He shows the power of the gospel through signs and wonders so that opponents could not disregard him or disregard that message. You see, religious leaders of that day, they were opposed to Jesus. They were opposed to the disciples. They could hear the gospel message and they could say, you know what, that's wrong. I disagree with that. But what they can't disagree with, what they can't argue, is how that man who was born lame can now suddenly walk. What are you going to say about that? You can't deny that. You can't reject that. And the whole purpose behind that is to validate their message. It left them speechless. They couldn't deny the facts. So signs, wonders, miracles, and we're going to have plenty of opportunity to talk about those, verified the truthfulness of the gospel message. But even greater than that amazing external verification through signs and wonders and miracles is the internal verification the Holy Spirit works in the hearts and minds of his people to open their eyes to see that this is indeed the truth of God. You just don't get better. The Holy Spirit is the one who empowers for mission. He is the one who verifies the truthfulness of the mission, and the Holy Spirit is the one who completes the mission. You and I can't save anybody. If I have learned one simple fact in the last six years of seeking to plant this church is that I can't save a soul. Simply can't do it. It's not in my power. It's not in my ability. We proclaim the gospel. People can hear the words that we proclaim. They can understand what we're trying to get at. But it is the Holy Spirit who opens their eyes to see the glory of Christ in it. It is the Holy Spirit that gives them ears to hear and eyes to see. It is the Holy Spirit that gives them new hearts. It is the spirit of regeneration that causes us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Building, as nice as it is, is not going to do that. An ancient text that is not the living and abiding word of God written upon the hearts of his people will not do that. A generation that it faithfully proclaims and lives out the gospel as necessary as that is won't do that. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to strengthen us to proclaim and to live out the gospel, to give new life to those who hear the word that we proclaim. And so, we must wait for it. We must obey the orders of our great general, as we see the disciples doing there in verse 4, and wait for it. Not by twiddling our thumbs, not by busying ourselves with work or entertainments or distractions, but to wait for it, eagerly, expectantly, prayerfully, faithfully, and in one accord, just as as the disciples do in the second half of verse or chapter one. While we strive to make disciples for Christ, baptizing them, observing and teaching to observe all that Christ has commanded, we must wait prayerfully and expectantly for him to pour out the Holy Spirit 
bringing the Word of God to bear upon the souls of men. Because apart from that, we can do nothing. And so, you know, as we leave here, let's go with the certainty that the mission of Christ continues. Jesus is still at work. And He is the one who has called us and commissioned us to proclaim His name. He has equipped us to do that which He has called us to do through the living Word and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it is in that power that we go. And let us go boldly and prayerfully and expectantly into the field and eagerly await for Him to bring in the harvest. He is faithful. And He will surely do it. And the reason I know this is because the mission of Christ continues. And so let's pray. Father God, we do thank You. That You have not thrown down some sort of gauntlet upon us say this is what you must do and how you must be. And if you don't meet this standard, something is wrong. And God, I know so often we look at it that way. Oh God, people aren't coming to Christ the way that I'd hoped. Something must be wrong. People are still in sin. Must be something wrong. Culture seems to be giving way to all sorts of licentiousness, something must be wrong. And we treat you like you're dead, like you're distant, or like you are unconcerned. So we thank you for the reminder that that is not true. That Christ's mission is continuing, and that he is at work. That we can be certain of that. We thank you that though we have been called and commissioned to proclaim the truth and beauty of Jesus to other people, we don't do that in our own power or ability. You have given us the Holy Spirit to enliven us, to embolden us, to empower us, to bring verification both external and internal. He is the one who completes the mission. And so we thank you for that. God, I pray that that would affect us deeply, that we would go out in all confidence because it's not in my words, it's not in my ability. Silver and gold, I have none, but what I have, I give to you. And Lord, I pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us and upon our community, upon our brothers and sisters throughout the world and the lost who are there. so that many would see and believe to repent and find hope in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ until he comes.